Hello and welcome back from The Conversation. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. And you're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. In this episode, two Arctic Ocean researchers explain how melting ice in the far north is leading to more light in the Arctic and what that means for sea life. Our ecosystems are responding because these changes are really dramatic and they're noticeable. And we talked to a team of archaeologists about the early humans who lived in Tanzania's Olduvai Gorge two million years ago. In this scenario, hominins from Otba maintain the very same toolkit. So Gemma, today we're going to take a journey just about as far north as you can go, all the way up to the Arctic. What do you imagine when I say the words Arctic? I feel a bit cold already, and I guess I think of big expanses of snow and ice, drifting, like wind, maybe the odd polar bear, pretty desolate. And I guess in winter, it's just just dark. That's a great example if you were to stay on top of the ice, but there's a whole different world beneath it, and it's full of ocean life, like teeming alive. We know climate change is causing lots of this ice to melt though, right? Yeah, totally. Well, some of the ice melts every summer, the sun's up, and then in winter when the sun goes away, it grows back. But that ice is melting much more than it used to. So in September 2020, Arctic sea ice covered 3.74 million square kilometers. Well, that sounds like a lot. It, It does, but it's actually the second smallest measurement ever and only roughly half of what was measured in 1980. So what does that melting sea ice mean for that teeming sea life living in the Arctic Ocean? Uh, It's not clear cut. It's not all bad news even. Uh, Different scientists are studying all sorts of changes to see how it's going to matter for the life in the Arctic. But one of the things they're looking at is light. If there's less and less sea ice, more light, you know, gets down into the ocean. And in the dark winter, where ice would normally cover the ice caps, it's not there. So ships are driving through more and more and bringing with them a lot of artificial light. I spoke to two researchers who've been spending a lot of time in the cold, icy waters way up north to study all of this. And let's just let one of them kind of set the scene here. So Gemma and all you listeners out there, imagine you step off a plane in the far, far north. Here's what you might see. So you have these places that are so covered in snow and ice that they almost have a moon landscape of just bare rock in the summer. You know, no no leaves, no forest, no trees. That is Karen Phillippe Dexter, a research fellow at the University of Western Australia and a scientist at the Institute of Marine Research in Norway. She's talking about the shoreline there. The long, dark winters make it so that even in the sunny summer, the landscape is barren. But in the ocean, there's a very different story. And then you go underwater, and you have to go a little bit deeper. But when you dive, you sort of pass this zone where all of a sudden these amazing underwater forests appear. These forests are not made of trees, of course, but of kelp attached to the seafloor, swaying in the ocean currents. So you have these long blades that will float in the water column, and then they, just like a forest, shade light and create these understory conditions that uh, fish and animals use and live in, in the same way as a forest does on land. And how big are we talking? Am I thinking redwood trees or am I thinking a bush in my yard kind of size? It depends on the species and it depends on the forest. So 
The first kelp forest that I dove on in the Arctic was about one to two meters tall. And it was actually in Arctic Norway. But the largest kelp forest that I've been in in the Arctic has been in Canada. So there is an area in Nunavut where the kelp was about three to five meters tall. And that was spectacular. Until recently, not too much was known about Arctic kelp. What kind grew where, or even really how much there is. Karen and her colleagues at the Arctic Kelp Project, an aptly named group of universities, institutions, and NGOs across Canada, are trying to catalog what kelps are growing in the Arctic today and how warming temperatures are going to affect where they grow in the future. Karen has spent a lot of time underwater using scuba gear to study these kelp ecosystems. But for many of these places, you can only access them in the short window when sea ice disappears. So that's what's incredible about these habitats. They're covered by ice for sometimes more than half of the year, and they require light to live. So they're just growing based on light that reaches the seafloor in this very short period when the ice is not there. Kelps and, well, everything in the Arctic Ocean spend a huge amount of time in the dark, either because it's winter and the sun hasn't come up for months, or because the sea surface is covered by ice. When the ice melts and daylight returns, kelps grow really fast. They have to. It's a short growing season. But that growing season is getting longer. Here in red, these areas saw significantly less sea ice cover than they would expect for the month of July. And in many cases here, it was just open water because the ice had melted away. So what's happening now in the Arctic is we have this massive and dramatic loss of sea ice. So this means that a large amount of Arctic coastline, which is normally covered in ice and normally doesn't get that much light, is now suddenly sort of open to, to the sun. All you gardeners out there will know this equation. More sunlight, more growth. As Arctic temperatures warm due to climate change and sea ice shrinks, these underwater forests are expanding and kelp is now growing in places where it didn't used to. So based on how the conditions have changed, from 1950 to now, we can predict that the migration rate in the Arctic is about 20 kilometers per decade. So this sort of poleward expansion is definitely marching along. And there's all the evidence that these changes are accelerating. 20 kilometers per decade is pretty fast for a bunch of trees. <laughs> yes, the, the marching forests. Um, it is definitely something out of a Lord of the Rings movie. But uh, I think the rules are different in the Arctic, right? So it's changing much faster than the rest of the world. Everything happening there is happening at, you know, two to three times the rate uh, of change. So we're already way into the climate change future along our Arctic coastlines. So it's not surprising that our ecosystems are responding because these changes are really dramatic and they're noticeable and they're going to put a lot of pressure on marine species to move. These changes that are causing kelp to expand and move are not good everywhere though. A lot of the Arctic coastline is made of permafrost. This is essentially frozen soil. When that frozen soil thaws, all of that dirt and sediment just flushes into the coastal zone and creates a lot of turbidity. This murky brown water prevents light from reaching the seafloor and the kelps growing there. The poles, they're melting. 
Scientists say the Arctic has been warming up for years. The Milne Ice Shelf is about as far north as you can get. It collapsed into the sea last year. A 44 week, square mile chunk, twice the size of Manhattan, broke off from the largest remaining Arctic ice shelf. Another side effect of climate change is that glaciers and ice sheets are melting and dumping huge amounts of fresh water into coastal areas that can also harm kelp. So while not every change is good for kelps and seaweeds way up north, overall, Karen says that predictive models show the future is looking pretty good for Arctic kelp forests. In many other parts of the world, these ecosystems are shrinking, so it's kind of cool that at least to some extent, these losses are being offset up north. And a large expansion of underwater kelps might actually help slow climate change ever so slightly. Just like trees on land, kelps rely on carbon dioxide to grow. Expanding kelp forests in the Arctic could become a pretty significant carbon sink. When these kelps die, they just kind of drift slowly to the deep, dark depths of the ocean. And because it's so cold, they don't really rot either. Instead, they just sit there, keeping carbon dioxide locked up at the bottom of the ocean. There are other, more tangible benefits to larger kelp forests too. It's great habitat for marine life. They're going to have a higher canopy height and a higher biomass. This means that there's more space for animals to live in. So basically more, more rooms in the house, more structure, more, more niches for, for different species to occupy. Um, but it also probably will mean a shift in species. So most seaweeds and most kelps in the Arctic were almost kicked out in the last ice age, and then they've been slowly uh, inching their way back in. And some of them have done a better job and have adapted to these really extreme conditions um, better than others. Kelps aren't the only thing that likes less sea ice. Us humans do as well. As sea ice decreases in both summer and winter, the formerly dark polar night that lasts for weeks or months is now being lit up like never before by boats and the artificial light they bring in with them. This is a big deal to the multitudes of sea creatures that have adapted over millions of years to the darkness of the polar night. One group of scientists is studying how this new influx of light is changing the behavior of these animals. My name is Jürgen Berge. I'm a professor in marine biology at the UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. Jürgen, unlike most people, doesn't actually mind the long, dark polar winter. I spoke to him late last year, when the polar night in Norway had just begun. We actually just started the polar night. I'm sitting now in Tromsø at 70 degrees north. The sun orbits around our horizon for 24 hours a day for two months in a row. There is still a um, clear difference between day and night. But that difference becomes less and less the further north you get. And once you get up to around 80 degrees, then the human eye is uh, hardly able to, to distinguish any difference between night and day during the darkest part of the polar night. But the polar night is certainly not just dark. It's actually all about different kinds of light, both background illumination from the sun, the aurora borealis, the moon, uh, also biological light. Up until fairly recently, scientists used to think that the darkness of the polar night was uninteresting, devoid of life. But a research project that Jorgen started back in 2006 changed all that, and kind of by accident. 
His team was looking at how retreating sea ice would affect the marine ecosystem in an Arctic fjord. So we had to be there in the late autumn to deploy instruments that would then be in place and do measurements when the sun came back. But then as a as more or less a byproduct, the instruments were also doing measurements during the dark polar night. But when we got these data back, we started to realize that, uh, hang on, something something is actually happening here. What he and his team found changed scientists' understanding of the polar night. The polar night isn't boring. Far from it, in fact. So it's a system that is, in fact, in full operation. Seabirds, fishes, zooplankton. It's just so fascinatingly full of life during the dark polar night. One of the processes Jürgen and his colleagues has studied is called diol vertical migration. That is the behavior where organisms, zooplankton and fish, they move up from the deep up into the shallow during nighttime and go migrate down into the deep during daytime. This is entirely controlled by light, so researchers just assumed it would stop. The polar night is just perpetual darkness after all. It turns out that it doesn't stop. It's ongoing. And one of the things that we have started to realize is how extremely intimately these organisms are connected to the light climate, to ambient light. Even with the sun gone during winter months, light plays a huge role in the Arctic. The sun still brightens the sky ever so slightly as the Earth rotates. Moon cycles also change light levels, and so does the aurora borealis. And creatures react to all of this. But when Jürgen and his colleagues were studying these creatures, they got conflicting data between the instruments they left alone in that fjord over one winter and the data they collected from their boats. The reason was light pollution from the researchers themselves. The first years, we really didn't fully really understand why the samples we took never matched the data that we got from acoustic instruments that had been deployed autonomously. But it turns out that these organisms, they are able to respond to extreme small levels of light. Jürgen and his team need, well, light to work on their boat. They can't see in the dark, so they use headlamps and floodlights and stuff. For ultralight-sensitive sea creatures, these lights are huge signals. Some swim towards them, some swim violently away. And not just animals near the surface. The team found this happening down to depths of 200 meters below the sea level. The effect of light pollution on animals in the Arctic could be happening on a huge scale thanks to melting sea ice and increased human presence. As sea ice retreats, as we start fishing further north, uh, oil and gas exploration, shipping not the least, uh, more and more human presence in the high Arctic during the polar night, then we also bring with us artificial light. At the, at the moment, we are not able to say to which degree this really is a problem. But uh, that is one of the things that we are now really starting to look into. And melting sea ice, well, that's climate change. So artificial light, it's not, of course, a direct effect of climate change, but it's certainly related to climate change. Because as, as it gets warmer, as there is less sea ice, then we see more human presence. And human presence will, it, it means there's more artificial light involved.
So what does this mean for all the fish, zooplankton, and other sea creatures that are super sensitive to light and live in this high arctic environment? Jürgen says that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, personally, I think that we have to look at effects in two ways. One is the direct effect of light pollution. It does affect organisms there and then. Most likely that effect is limited because it only lasts while there is artificial light there. And there's certainly a limit to the geographical extent of that impact. However, I think there's another effect that is much more important. And that is how it's affecting our knowledge about the pollenite. To take one example, there, there's more and more fisheries in the high Arctic during the, the pollenite. If you want to do surveys to give an estimate about how much uh, there is of, say, haddock or cod, you have to do acoustic surveys with the research vessels in the pollenite in where we are fishing. And these measurements might be strongly biased and impaired. Essentially, what Jürgen is saying is that every measure of Arctic fisheries ever taken in winter could be way off. By bringing in light, the fishermen and researchers change how fish and other animals behave. This is one of the oldest problems in biology, how to study ecosystems without disturbing them. And I asked him how he feels as a scientist to discover that his own presence could be distorting the very results of his research. It's, it sort of makes you feel unwanted. <laughs> you know that your presence is affecting the organisms, but it also, uh, as a scientist, it also makes me, uh, fills me with wonder and questions. And I, I find it fascinating trying to understand things I can't, cannot see. It's difficult to explain, but to me, when you really go up into the high Arctic and you allow yourself to be in the darkness and you start to take in all the senses, the sounds, the the light, it's just a, just a miracle sometimes. I can still remember one experience we had. This was uh, one of the first years when we were up on Svalbard in uh, early January and I was out in a uh, in a small boat uh, out in the middle of the fjord and we turned off the engines we turned off all lights because we wanted to look for seabirds and we looked down and we saw this upside down sky filled with blue green light and, and that was just an amazing experience to see all these organisms from big jellies to small unicellular organisms blinking and glowing and moving in all directions. That was a beautiful sight. What Jürgen was seeing was bioluminescence, light produced by creatures in the Arctic night to communicate with each other. When you live in total darkness, Light is almost paradoxically one of the most important and useful things there could possibly be. Even to the scientists who study it, the darkness of the polar night is so much more complex than anyone ever imagined. I love the idea of the ocean blinking back at you. That's just so beautiful, as Jorgen said. It made me want to go 
take a vacation to the polar north in the middle of winter, which I never thought I'd say before. But it is also dangerous. Both Karen and Jorgen were talking about polar bears and how you like actually have to carry guns. So it's not all just blinky lights and gorgeousness. Both Karen and Jorgen have written for The Conversation as part of a series we're running called Oceans 21. It examines the history and future of the world's oceans. On The Conversation website, we've actually got a profile of every ocean on Earth, and Jorgen and Karen contributed to the one on the Arctic. Yes, and our environment editors are publishing really important new research on a regular basis about the oceans. They just published another story about a team of scientists tracking where plastic pollution goes when it enters the water. We've put a link to that and the entire Oceans 21 series in the show notes. Coming up, a group of archaeologists talk to us about some of their recent finds from Tanzania. But first, we've got a message with some recommended reading from Laura Hood, politics editor and assistant editor at The Conversation in London. Hello, my name's Laura Hood. I'm a politics editor for The Conversation here in London. I've got two recommendations this week. I worked with a team of psychologists led by Daniel Jolly from the University of Northumbria here in the UK. He told me about some work his team has been doing investigating how young people are being affected by conspiracy theories in the pandemic. Before they got in touch, I hadn't realised that almost everything we know about conspiracy theories is based on work investigating adults. We know next to nothing about how children encounter and absorb misinformation. So they've been conducting surveys with British adolescents to try to work out at what age we're most vulnerable to conspiracy theories and the extent to which young people are being exposed to them during lockdown. It's really interesting reading, I think, particularly for parents. I'd also like to recommend an article written by Mark Toshner. He's an expert in respiratory medicine at the University of Cambridge. He's put together a guide for anyone who's feeling a bit overwhelmed by the scientific information that's flying around about vaccines right now. He says he feels really sorry for us in trying to absorb all this information and he wants to make it a bit easier. So he's tackling topics such as what it means when we hear that one vaccine is 90% effective, say, or another one is only 70% effective. Is that something we should be worrying about? Should we be trying to pick and choose our vaccines? He's also talking about what it means for a vaccine to be potentially less effective against particular types of variant of COVID-19. So it's really useful information at this stage of the pandemic. That was Laura Hood from The Conversation in London. So Dan, for our next story, we're heading to warmer climes, thankfully, to Tanzania in East Africa and a place called the Olduvai Gorge. It's known as the birthplace of humanity birthplace. So how long are we talking here? Ages, about two million years ago or so. And today, archaeologists from around the world come to Olduvai to study the remains of different species of early humans. But scientists are also interested in the ancient environment and what the gorge actually looked like back then. So is there a name for studying ancient climates? Yes, and it's a great one. It's paleoecology. So basically, this is looking for evidence of ancient plants and pollen and even bits of airborne charcoal by delicately sifting through layers of sediment. 
So we've been talking to a group of researchers who've been doing this work in a specific part of the Olduvai Gorge called Awas Aldupa, which actually means the way to the gorge in the Ma language of the local Maasai. And what they found has provided new insights into just how adaptable early humans were to the changing environment around them. I'm Julio Mercader and I'm a professor with the University of Calgary, which is in Western Canada. Okay, and we're talking to you today, Julio, about your most recent research that's just been published. It's about an area in Tanzania in East Africa. Can you just give me a bit of context? Why is this part of the world so important for our history? Olduvai Gorge is in East Africa. And if you think of it as a region, there is this rift that is splitting the crust of the earth that is allowing volcanoes to spit out lava and ash. But at the same time, the splitting is making the terrain sink. And when that happens, you have water building up and that forms lakes and rivers and swamps. And because of that, biodiversity tends to be really, really high because nature is really productive in this kind of a rift context. Now, in East Africa, which is where Olduvai is, the rift has been alive, so to speak, for more than 20 million years. So that when humanity is forming several million years ago, early humans, like any other animal, is being attracted to the resources that you find in the rift. Now, life near volcanoes was preserved because the eruptions and the sediments covered that up in then archaeologists exposed it. Huh? So now imagine an African Pompeii. But this time is much older. It is two million years. And instead of Romans, you want to imagine humans. But these humans are not like you and I, huh? They are early humans. Several species are unlike today when there is only one species. And among them, at Olduvai Gorge, you have the first member of our genus that we say in, bi in biology, and that is the genus Homo, right? And so, to sum it up, Olduvai Gorge is important because many aspects of early human life have been buried covered and preserved for posterity. And it's not only the human fossils, but what we humans did on a daily basis, our activities. And as you know, the gorge is like a canyon. It is like a small version of the Grand Canyon. And because there is like a scar in the terrain, you can see the fossils in the remains popping out from the walls that create the canyon. So it seems like an incredibly important place for archaeologists like you and your colleagues. How long ago are we talking? And is this a period of time when different species are actually competing for dominance? Well, there is a lot we don't know about this. But what we do know is that it was two million years ago. And at this point, what you have is humans belonging with uh, several genera 
So, for example, there is Homo habilis in that species belongs with, with the same genus as you and I. But there is also Paranthropus, YCA, in other uh, members of the Australopithecines. Now, are they competing directly with one another? From an ecological point of view, maybe not. Maybe not, because we know that the adaptations, the morphology of the body, the cranial architecture, the diets, may be a little different. So to explain this, imagine different species taking on different niches within the environment. Okay, so let's let's get into a bit more detail now about the research that you and your colleagues have recently published a paper on. What did you find? We uncovered evidence that hominins were coming to a specific location within the gorge, which is on the western side of it, and uh, they kept coming back. To understand more about what the team of archaeologists found in the gorge, I spoke to two of the Tanzanians who'd worked on the study, Pastor Ibushozi and Macarius Peter Atambu. I got them on a slightly dodgy line, so bear with us. My name is Pastor Ibushozi. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Dassam and the archaeologist working on paleoanthropology. My name is Macarius, a lecturer in archaeology, teaching human evolution, paleoenvironment and African Stone Age. What did you find? What did the ecology of the Olduvai Gorge look like when these populations you were studying were living there two million years ago? The discovery revealed that the earliest Olduvai hominin is used diverse but rapidly changing environments that range from fairy meadows to woodland mosaics, but also natural band landscape to the lakeside, but also there is a woodland and palm groves as well as steppes. Those were the kind of environment that it looked like during the two million years ago. So the landscape was changing. It was, you were having forests, you were having like a big steppe, you were having grasslands. Right. But the more interesting thing is Hominin continued to utilize the, the same toolkit, which is older one. And this is so interesting because uh, we believed that climatic change always trigger technological change. But in this scenario, hominins from Otpa, it was Otpa site, uh, maintain the very same toolkit, the older one, stone tools. You were seeing that they were using the same tools throughout that period. Yeah, that was so fascinating that despite of these um, rapid changes, adaptation to this major geomorphic and ecological transformation did not have an impact. Here's Julio Mercado again. What is interesting here is that over the course of 300,000 years, these old one hominins are coming back to exploit different environments. And so what we have here for the first time is evidence in one place of the diversity of uh, adaptive tools in strategies that humanity is using to exploit many different ecologies and environments showing an early example of great adaptability. So you're seeing a real ability to use the environment to their benefit. That is right. And so to me, this is a real landmark because 
There is technological dependence, but also the ability to adapt to whatever changes there are happening. And so in a way, it is like the very beginnings of the uh, invasive behavior that typifies any other pioneer. Dr. Pashoji, can I bring you in there? I understand it was you who made one of the oldest discoveries. Yes, it was me because actually I found that they are really strong tools that come on the lower sequence. So I was excited myself and I called my colleague to come and say that. That day, everybody was excited. So by then we are collecting everything so that what is going to happen when we are in the lab. And are you able to do research at the moment or is the pandemic stopping your research in the gorge? Because of the pandemic, we are not doing research, but still we are working on the lab. The, what I'm doing now is to clean those stone tools by using chemicals so that I can get a good picture on those stone tools. And then after that, we are also trying to get what kind of raw materials what kind of the implement they were using to shape those tools. And then when we go back to the field, we'll be able to find, trace now where those rocks were coming from. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You can read more about the research in a piece that Julio Mercada wrote for the conversation about their findings. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and to the conversation editors, Natasha Joseph, Jack Marley, Hannah Hogue and Laura Hood. You can find links to all of the expert analysis we've mentioned in this episode and tons of other recommended reading in the show notes. If you learn a ton and you want to read more, just click the link to sign up for our free daily email. This episode is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sorrell. Final thanks also to Alice Mason, Stephen Kahn, and Imril Morgan. Thank you for listening, everybody. Until next time. Thank you.